0: All right, I got so caught up in my story, I forgot to tell you what I was going to speak about today. Here here it goes. Uh, Today, as Mike read, we're going to talk about the story of Jairus. Uh, But it's not just a story of Jairus. It's a story of Jairus and then a woman that interrupts Jairus, okay? You actually have three interruptions in the story. Jairus is a father. He's going to interrupt Jesus and ask Jesus to go to his house to heal his daughter, Then Jairus is going to be interrupted by a woman that touches the hem of his garment, and she is healed. And then Jesus is going to go to Jairus' house and interrupt everybody with a resurrection. So you have three interruptions. The title of our message this morning is Pardon the Interruption. We'll talk about the three interruptions in the passage, and uh, then we're going to talk about what faith looks like in these these two uh, uh, vignettes here. So Luke, excuse me, fix my mic, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. All right, one of the things about COVID and putting a mask on and off is it pulls the mic all around. There we go. All right, pardon the interruption. I want to give you the first interruption here in verse 40. The text says, now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. Now, remember, Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. He went to a place that is Gentile country. There's not Jewish people there. We know that because there's like 2,000 pigs, at least 2,000. Because Jesus cast a legion of demons out of a man that was running around in the tombs. And he's cast into a herd of swine and the swine run off the cliff. Now Jesus and the apostles, presumably Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, who are also with them, are all coming back to the other side. And here Jesus steps off the boat. And here comes the first interruption. Uh, Verse 41. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Jairus here is a ruler of the synagogue. The the Greeks would call this an archon. You know, He's the, the number one of the synagogue. That doesn't mean he's the number one in a temple of Jerusalem. That's the bigger worship place. He's not a chief scribe or anything like that. He's like a chief administrator there in the local synagogue in Capernaum. So he would do all this ministry kind of stuff. He would lay out the scrolls. He would set the readings. He might even set up where people would sit and things like that. And he's the head guy. He's the number one. He might pray. He might administrate the prayer and have other people pray. One of the things that we could talk about all day that we're just going to skip over is this. Not every religious leader rejected Jesus. Now, a lot of them did. But remember, Jairus is the number one in Capernaum. And he is falling at Jesus' feet. We see the same thing with someone like Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was way up in the food chain there in the Jewish system. And he's someone that you know, provided spices for the body of Jesus after his death. Or Nicodemus, the disciple that came at night. Or you could go to Acts chapter 6 where it says, Many of the priests believed. And so not every religious leader rejected Jesus. When Paul, in the book of Corinthians, says not many mighty are called, not many noble, not many of high estate, that phrase not many doesn't mean none. It just means by and large the poor and the marginalized come to accept Jesus and and see him as Savior. But certainly many rich people do and many rulers do, and we have an example of that here. He's the number one in Capernaum, and he falls at Jesus' feet. He has an unnamed daughter. According to Luke this is his only daughter. We could assume she's probably about 12 years old. She's in the prime of life. In fact, she's on her deathbed. Mark uses the word eschatos. That's an interesting word. You that study theology know the word eschatology. That's the doctrine of last things. Mark uses the word to describe her situation. She, Luke does too, actually. She's an eschatos. In other words, she is not... She doesn't have a day or two left. She is right there at the end with the sickness that she has. Right near the end. She could take her last breath at any moment. Now you have to understand the drama of the story. Jesus gets off the boat. No doubt Jairus has been waiting for Jesus because his daughter is about to die. He knows this. He knows Jesus will be coming across. And I could picture Jairus standing there looking at the boat. Just hoping that thing comes quicker and quicker. Finally, it reaches shore. All the people flock again to Jesus. The word used in the passage here for flocking to Jesus, it's one of the words for prison, you know? These people are like a prison to Jesus. That's how crowded he is. And he's walking along, and Jairus falls down at his feet. I'm picturing people falling over Jairus, you know, as he falls down at Jesus' feet. And he says, my daughter is on taking her last breath. Will you come to my house and raise her up? Time is of the essence. We don't have time to fool around. This isn't one of those, we go to lunch, then we go to my house. Jairus truly believes his daughter must be healed immediately, and he calls upon Jesus. Now, two things that I just want to point out in the story here. Number one, let's notice how approachable Jesus is. This is great. Boy, if you're a Christian, he's not like King Xerxes, where you need an invitation to approach him. He's the one that said, Let the little children come to me. This is the same Jesus that said, Whosoever will may come. You have never said that and meant it. I want you to go out into the street and put a sign on your house and say, Whosoever will may come. You don't know what's going to come in your house, you know? Jesus, Whosoever will may come. Come to me. I'm approachable. This is a passage where it says, for three days continuously, Jesus was approached by people. He, he lacked sleep. He lacked food. He lacked water. He's dealing all the problems. Oh, the endless questions. Things like, "My brother is about to take my inheritance," and Jesus would talk to them. This one is sick with a disease, and Jesus would heal this one. Jesus is approachable. It's a wonderful thing that we can appreciate as Christians. There's a um, an old story that uh, Charles Spurgeon talks about. Uh, he talks about an old Russian fable. There's a, uh, uh, a rich Russian fable, you know. And uh, he's very, uh, cares for the poor. He'll, anybody that comes to his house, he'll give them food. He'll give them food, he'll give them money, he'll take great care of them. But the catch in the fable is, he has big dogs in the front yard that bark every time you come in the yard. <laughs> in other words, he has a big heart, but you can't get to him. And Spurgeon says, not so with our Savior. You know, our Savior is approachable. You can go up to him, you can touch him, so much so that a woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years can actually get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. More on that in a minute. Another passage here, a thought that we could talk about just before Father's Day, is notice the love that Jairus has for his daughter. I mean, we we gloss over this one. Uh, Jesus is under pretty big suspicion here. Uh, The religious leaders are not happy with Jesus. Jesus is already talking at this point about the fact that they're going to put him on a cross. And Jairus has gotten the memos. He's got the other religious leaders telling him, you don't talk to Jesus, you don't approach Jesus, you move with suspicion, he's a blasphemer, he's a glutton, he's a friend of sinners. Jairus has heard all this. When Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus, you know what he's doing? He's losing about half of his friend group just by taking that risk. He's losing probably about half of his income when he falls down at Jesus' feet. The people that admire Jairus are the people that do not like Jesus. And Jairus takes great risk to himself because he loves his daughter. Fathers, here's a pre-Father's Day message. Jairus puts his family before his social status. He puts it before his income. And dads, in a world that tells us that your happiness is the most important thing, the gospel teaches your priorities and my priorities are supposed to be higher than that. Let me tell you where the rubber meets the road for a dad. That when you wake up Monday morning and the last thing you want to do is go to work, what do you do? You get up, you get your coffee, and you go to work. (laughs) Because your number one priority for that moment is to love God by taking care of your family that we don't go by the big boat we can't afford because we have to think about priorities, right? Jairus here prioritizes his daughter even over his friend group. And in a world that tells Jairus to stay away from Jesus, he will not stay away. Why? Because he loves his daughter that much. It's a great lesson, and it's a challenging one for dads in a culture that tells you the most important thing is for you to be happy. And Jairus shows us that's not the most important thing there are way higher priorities in this life than just what makes you happy. That's interruption number one. Interruption number two, the woman interrupts Jairus. Jairus interrupts Jesus, the woman interrupts Jairus, verse 42. And following it, uh, verse four, and, and he had an only daughter, 12 years of age. And Jesus uh, went, the people pressed around him. That's the word prison. It has a concept of a prison. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And, and, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surrounding you are pressing on you. And Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceived power had gone out of me. And when a woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had become immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This woman has been suffering with an issue of blood. It's a hemorrhage. For 12 years, she's had a hemorrhage. This is absolutely devastating. I want to talk about this in a few minutes. But with a hemorrhage like this, she is ceremonially unclean. Forget the physical pain she's in. Just put that aside for a minute. Put aside the hygiene that they don't have in the first century. This woman walks around embarrassed all the time. She also walks around in a ceremonially unclean way. People are not allowed to be around this woman. Why is this woman hiding in the crowd? It's not just because she's embarrassed, it's because it's illegal. She's not allowed in this crowd anyway because you're not supposed to get that close to people in this culture. Because if you touch them, they are now ceremonially unclean. Now the passage tells us, the old translations say, touch the hem of the garment. Uh, The newer translations do a better job than this. They touch the fringe of the garment. And and the reason the newer translations have changed is because they've actually picked up on the word here. Remember in Numbers 15 it talks about the garments that... Uh, the men in the Jewish culture would wear, and there are four tassels that hang down by that cord, this is the same word that's used in number for one of those tassels. In other words, when the woman comes up, she's not touching the hem of the garment like if you have a jacket. She's reaching out and touching that tassel. That tassel is representative of the obedience that this rabbi Jesus would have before the Lord and loving God and loving other people. In other words, his law-keeping. The tassel represents the obedience of God. Now, there's a great picture here. The woman touches the tassel. The unclean woman touches the tassel. Jesus becomes unclean, but she in the process becomes clean. That's a great exchange. That's a picture of the gospel. That's what it is when we become believers in Jesus. That our sin is nailed to the cross. He pays for that. His righteousness is given our account the woman walks away clean, Jesus walks away ceremony unclean and has to bear the consequence of that. That's the sacrifice Jesus gives and it's a small picture of what took place at the cross. Now again, the woman is terribly embarrassed. Verse 45, she's trembling. This is like her worst nightmare. You imagine a woman that's lived in isolation for 12 years she had very few normal conversations. She doesn't go out in public at all. She finally goes out in public. She touches the tassel and the rabbi goes, everybody stop. Who touched me? You know, And she's hiding behind the crowd. You picture she's trying to sneak away. But Jesus will not let her go. She is not embarrassed. She's beyond embarrassed. She's a criminal at this point. This is illegal. You can't touch the visiting rabbi having hemorrhage for 12 years. Boy, I'll tell you, she interrupts. Ah, let's not forget Jairus. His daughter is Eschatas. She's about to die, about to breathe her last breath. And here this woman comes up, and she's healed, and Jesus stops. And he, What do you think Jairus is thinking? Jesus, we got to go. We don't, have, we don't have time for these kinds of interruptions. My daughter is about to breathe her last breath. Sometimes it feels like God is unjust. It really does sometimes. I mean, let's be completely honest. This is medical malpractice. This is spiritual malpractice. The woman's issue can wait. And by the way, she's already been healed. Jesus could just move on. At this point in the story, here's the feeling you get. You get the feeling... That Jesus has just cured something that could wait. And he stopped to have a conversation. And he's allowing a 12-year-old girl to die. This girl that's about to enter the prime of life. This girl that has so much to live for. And sometimes we wonder why God does certain things in his own time. I don't know why God heals some and doesn't heal others. I don't pretend to know the answers to that. I don't know why sometimes God takes care of what we deem to be lesser things and allows the bigger things to continue. But God has a plan, and that's what he allows in this story. Jairus interrupts Jesus. Ah, the woman interrupts Jairus. But now Jesus is about to interrupt everybody. And it begins in verse 49. While they were still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. No surprise to Jairus. He was expecting that. No doubt his heart hit the floor. Do not trouble the teacher anymore but jesus hearing this answered and said, do not fear only believe and she will be well when he came to the house he allowed no one to enter except peter and john and james peter james and john commonly travel with jesus remember the mount transfiguration jesus brought peter james and john uh garden of gethsemane peter james and john those are the big three we learned that when we went to the twelve apostles He also brought in the father and the mother of the child. They are all weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead but sleeping. What did they do? They all start to laugh. They do not think this is funny. They are humoring the rabbi that that speaks out of turn. That's what they think they're doing. And they laughed at him knowing she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called and said, child, arise. That word "child" is an amazing word. It's a term of endearment. It's like um, it's like little lamb, get up. It's the way it's the way a mother would wake a child in the morning. That's that's what commentators liken this unto. There's almost a whole play on it. Jesus is like she's sleeping, and they laugh, and then he says, "Hey, sweetie, wake up." She gets up, and she's restored. The Spirit returned to her, verse 55. Her parents were amazed. He charged them that no one to say nothing had happened. And 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 the picture here is amazing. When, she, when Jesus goes into the house, she's already dead. Now you have to understand, in the first century, there's no embalming. The funerals have already begun. A funeral like this, the first thing you would find is people ripping their clothes. Uh, there are actually thirty-nine rules in the Talmud and how you would rip your clothes. You would normally, if you were part of the family, like mom or dad, you would do it over the heart. If you are a woman, you'd do it up here. If you are a dad, you would do it down here and rip. But everybody would rip their clothes somewhere. At a, at a, at a, at a funeral like this, if you walked in a house, you would hear it rip, rip, rip. It was a sign of grief. And you would leave that unstitched for about seven days. Then you would sew it up. The second thing you would encounter is what we call professional mourners. When you go into a funeral in the West, it's very quiet. I mean, you can hear a pin drop. When you go in in the East, it's shrieking and it's wailing. It's very demonstrative all the more in the first century. They would actually hire professional mourners. You can read this in Jeremiah. You can read this in the book of Amos. And the ancient historians talk about this. Some cultures still do it to this day. You had to hire at least two professional shriekers. And they were loud. And they were really good at what they did. Remember when Jesus is on his way to the cross and the daughters of Jerusalem are weeping for Jesus? Most people think those are like professional mourners. That was a ministry or what they did for a living. They also had all kinds of musicians that would come into these. And again, the Talmud tells us that you had to hire, even if you were poor, you had to hire at least two flutes. And if you were rich like Jairus, you hired a lot more. When you walked into these, it was a spectacle. People ripping their clothes, professional mourners. The flutes are playing. Can you see why Jesus put everybody out? <laughs> you know? Everybody leave. Peter, James, and John, come with me. Get the parents. We're going in the room. Jesus does not want to deal with this fiasco. <laughs> Little lamb arise. Uh, D.L. Moody, uh, an evangelist from the past century, had to preach his very first funeral. And he didn't know what to do. And so he said, what I'll do is I'll just read through the Gospels and uh, I'll find a funeral service that Jesus preached and, and uh, then, uh, then I'll preach that message. And he read through all four Gospels before realizing Jesus never preached a funeral service. <laughs> Jesus always interrupted the funeral service. He did it with this young lady. He did it with Lazarus. And he's someday going to do it with us. Arise. Let me give you a couple of thoughts about faith. Our faith in God and our faith in Christ. Uh, very first thing I want to point out is this. Let's talk about desperation. Uh, we, often, we, we often have to come to the end of ourselves before we really go to God. But God is there when we come to the end of ourselves. It's like desperation is an impetus for seeking God. We all... Can understand Gyrus here. Gyrus is a father. His daughter is sick. Uh, when I, as I got older, you know, and men and women, you know this. Like, like if you're over 25, when you were a kid, you knew people that had no fear of death at all. You know, they didn't fear anything. Uh, you get these big burly men. You know, they, they don't care if they live. They don't care if they die. But if their kid gets sick, they're just like the rest of us. They're on their knees, they're weeping, they're praying. The sickness of a child is the Achilles heel of the strongest person in the world. You're only as happy as your most unhappy child. Jairus' daughter is dead, and he is broken. He is desperate. Jairus is the kind I imagine it would say, I really don't care if I live or I die. I have no fear of the devil himself, but he's desperate because he loves his little girl so much that's what drives him to Jesus. And how about the woman? Let's go back to the woman. Number 1, I'll give you five ways real quick. This woman is desperate. She's physically desperate. Terrible pain with the issue of blood. I don't want to go into this too much, but in the unsanitary culture, the stench just follows her everywhere. This poor woman is in incredible physical pain. She's also financially desperate. Mark tells us, remember Luke is a doctor, He omits this little part. Mark tells us she wasted all her living on doctors. (laughs) I think Luke is trying to justify his profession a little bit here, you know? He like omits that part. They had all kinds of attempts. By the way, they had good, they had crazy doctors back then. One of the cures for this was to carry an ostrich egg around. Yeah, that's crazy, I know. But they had good doctors too. I mean, they could perform surgeries and things like that. Don't think they were all you know, quacks and things like that. She spent all her money on the good and the bad doctors, and nothing helped her. In fact, her condition is getting worse. She's religiously desperate. Remember, everything she touches is now unclean. If she sits on a chair, that becomes unclean. If she brushes up against someone, they're ceremonially unclean. The clothes, the couches, uh, the fellowship, this poor woman, everybody stays away from her, and she's supposed to stay away from everybody. She's socially desperate. If she's married, by now she's probably divorced. She's ostracized in her relationships. She's isolated for 12 years. She's emotionally desperate. At the end of her rope, physically, financially, religiously, socially, emotionally, I wonder if anyone in here is at the end of their rope. I wonder if you're at that point of desperation where you just feel this incredible hopelessness In incredible pain, sometimes you don't even know what to do with it. I can only tell you what this woman did with it. She went to the master and did the only thing she knew to do. She touched the tassel. Now, why would she touch the tassel? Why would she sneak? Because she's not supposed to touch the rabbi. But she's not afraid to do so. God is there when we come to the end of ourselves Number two, let's talk about the scandal of faith. Following God's will instead of the opinions of people, that can be scandalous. You know, what do my parents think? What do my husband think? What do my friends think if they find out I follow God? The community pressure can be overwhelming. Jesus is growing in popularity to the point where they're ripping roofs off the building to lower people down, the house. And um, the Pharisees and the religious leaders are very suspicious Jairus has gotten the memo, don't associate with this rabbi, stay away from this one, he's a blasphemer, he's no good. Jairus is about to lose half of his fen group and probably half of his finances just by talking to someone like Jesus, just by giving him credibility. In the middle of this suspicion, he falls at the feet of Jesus. No amount of peer pressure will keep him from coming to Jesus. And again, the woman, not just embarrassed, but probably doing something illegal. She is so desperate, she's willing to make the visiting rabbi unclean. But that's the level of desperation she's at. And when she does this, she receives the warmest, loving welcome from this rabbi Jesus. What kind of faith demonstrate this scandalous faith? What kind of people do? In each of these stories, the woman and Jairus... I think the early church could relate to this. They are willing to bear shame as they identify with Jesus. And so Jesus bears shame for his people, and we bear shame for the sake of the gospel. Number three, let's talk about how imperfect her faith is. Uh, God blesses imperfect faith. I'm very thankful for this, because I have imperfect faith. Uh, we, you know, we, we talk about, because Jesus looks at the woman, and he says, Your faith has made you whole. It's not her good works that made her whole. It's her faith that made her whole, right? Jesus says that plainly. But we forget how imperfect this faith is. Remember, the woman's hiding. She's fearful of being called out. This is a very imperfect faith. The woman here is not being... Jesus does not remark on the depth or the size or the amount of faith she has. It's what she did with the actual faith she had. God blesses her imperfect faith. I can only tell you for the sake of time, don't wait for your faith to be perfect before you go to Jesus. Because you're going to be waiting an awfully long time if that's the posture you and I have. Go to Jesus with the little faith you have. Go to him with all those little doubts. There you are at the end of the day when you just want to pray, God, I need help. But you start saying to yourself, oh, I can't pray. Remember what I said to that guy at 12 o'clock? You know, I was so rude. You know, Would God forgive me of that? Go to God. Go to Jesus. Remember how approachable he is. Remember that he receives even the broken faith that we offer. God blesses imperfect faith. Go to him. Don't let your imperfect faith keep you from going to him. Number four, last point. We've got to learn to wait on God. Whew, this one's hard. Perseverance, learning to wait on God. Think about, again, the interruption that Jairus has. Jairus falls at the feet of Jesus. His little girl is at the end of her life. This woman comes up. She interrupts Jairus' plan. Jairus had a plan. It was a good plan, wasn't it? Get Jesus to come to the house to heal my daughter. That's a pretty good plan. But this woman is now in the way of Jesus executing this plan. And i got to believe that when Jesus says, who touched me, Jairus' heart started to go, what's going on here? Time is of the essence. We have to get going. Jesus here is on a delay. He's on his own clock because God wears his own watch. But it's a delay of love. And Jairus might have been thinking to himself, Jesus, I know you're the creator of the universe, but you know I know much more than you and we need to get going. In reality, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. You know what the other resurrection is? The big one in John, what is it, 11? The resurrection of Lazarus. Do you remember how that took place? Lazarus is about to die. And Jesus intentionally waits three days before he goes to Lazarus' house. And Martha, the sister, comes up and says, If you didn't delay, my brother would still be alive. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You know why Jesus allowed that delay in that case? Because all the people that had gone through the funeral of Lazarus and saw that dead body, Jesus raised him from the dead and that became an even greater testimony. Because that miracle was not done in the dark, it was done out in the light. You know how many hundreds of people went through that funeral procession and that funeral line and saw that dead body and then they see three days later this guy's up and walking? There's no way you could deny that this, this did not take place in the corner. <laughs> That's a delay of love. Jesus had a delay. He had a plan in that delay. He has a plan in this delay. And I can only conclude from that that when he asks us to wait, God has got a plan in our lives. I don't always know why. I don't know why God does things at the time he does. And sometimes we feel like Jairus. Jesus, we've got to get going. You've got to get me that job got to bring that person in my life. You got to get me a new car. You know, we have, we have all these things we feel like God needs to do now. But it's a delay of love. It's a delay of love. And, and you know what Jairus is about to learn? You don't need to know the plan, all the details. You just need to know that I know the details of the plan, Jairus. <laughs> That's what Jesus is communicating to Jairus here. We don't need to know every detail of what God is going to do in our lives. And sometimes we operate on what I call an idolatry of knowledge. We say things like, if you just tell me all the details, Jesus, I'll follow you to the end of the earth. And Jesus has a way of saying, you don't need to know all the details, just know that I know all the details. I imagine that if you're a parent, a grandparent, at some point, you've put your kids in the car and they kept asking, where are you going? What road is it? You know? And you're like, you don't need to know where we're going, you just need to know that I know where we're going. I'm the one driving Jesus is teaching us. It's not important that we know how every detail in this world is going to fall out. It's just important that we know the one that knows and plans how every detail of this world is going to fall out. Learning to wait on God. Jairus learns that. And through this, his faith actually grows. May God bless and keep us as we walk with him this week. Father, thank you for your grace. The interruptions in our lives... Sometimes they can overtake us and overwhelm us. We need your strength. We need your grace. Grow our faith through this. For those here today under the sound of my voice that are at that point of desperation, I've been there, God. I I know this. May we go to you. Go with all that imperfect faith. (laughs) Go with all the guilt that we feel. Go with all the baggage, but go to you. Because when we go to you, we're received the same way this woman is received. Where you say, child, go in peace. For those of us that are waiting on God to do something, waiting is hard work. But I pray that we'd wait patiently for you to work. Knowing that we don't need to know every detail. We don't need to know the whole timetable, though we like to know. But we serve a God that knows So help us to trust you in these difficult times. Give us your grace and strength. Continue to speak to our hearts as we close with song and benediction. In Jesus' name, amen.